Kyle's Barheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you, Father. Special thanks, Father, for those earthly fathers in our lives, Father, especially those that have raised us up in the faith. Father, we're so grateful for times like this, moments like this, that we're able just to simply rejoice in the grace gifts that you've given us in time, Father. Thank you for giving us not just those, but eternal hope for things to come, Father. We know that as good as things are here on earth, they pale in comparison to what's in front of us. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us this morning, that earnestly desire to be here. Our prayers go out to them, Father. We want them to know that we're with them in spirit. We pray that you bring them back to the fold. Your will be done. We pray also for those in this world that are still lost, without hope, destitute, helpless of the eternal life that we cling to. We pray that they're humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a reality for us to enjoy. We do just ask for your blessings on this message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Proverbs 17, Wisdom, Part 6. This has been a fantastic series that we've been on. Proverbs 17, Wisdom, Part 6. On Thursday, we began with some additional perspective on wisdom itself. Uh, wisdom on wisdom, if you will. And I loved it, and I hope you did too. I love when he does that, when he sort of stretches us and says, hey, let's step back and look at um, what wisdom even is. What's the value of wisdom to us when it's imparted to our souls? What's the value? In other words, what's the wisdom on wisdom? Let's quickly review that. Go to Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Again, Proverbs 17, Wisdom is our primary course of study. This is part six. Hopefully you've been keeping up to speed. If you've missed any, we're back to full-blown recordings. A couple of hiccups along the way. Uh, Carol, keep it down back there. <sighs> you know, I know, I, yeah, I know. Uh, uh, it's just, uh. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. What's it say? I love it, right? This is just Solomon's summary. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's beautiful. All is vanity. Can we just get our perspectives right here on a Sunday morning like this? Just all is vanity. The stuff we do, we're, we're, we're like the most foolish creatures. We're more, more foolish if you think about it. I mean, we have consciences, right? We're in the image of God. We're, we're sentient creatures, as we would call ourselves. We're able to think and reason and emote and all these kinds of things. And 
We know better. We should know better. And we act worse than the animals. <laughs> it's incredible. It's all vanity. Anyways, chasing after the wind, all that good stuff. Look at verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's a good question. Reminds us of Jesus' own words up here on the board. His wisdom, Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? That's a good question. Verse 3 again. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Here's some perspective. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Like I said on Thursday, we should feel sort of small. We're generations and generations and generations after so many other people who have gone this route. The only difference really is technology, advancements, uh, inventions, if you want to call it that. Uh, that really is the only difference because man is man and that's the way it goes. We've not much changed. We have the same basic fleshly desires. We fail the same ways. We're fickle. We're awful to each other. Um, that's just man. We're sinners. But on Thursday, the Spirit made us think and remember that life is short. I mean, what do, if we're lucky, we go, what, 80 years, maybe? 90 if you're really lucky? Life has context as well. It's short, but it has context. And without said context, our lives are vapid. They're void of real meaning. We lack the perspective that gives us a sense of purpose. And what's worse than roaming the earth without a purpose? Isn't that like the big question, the big philosophical question throughout the ages? You know, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? That's the big philosophical question. We believers do have a purpose that we can cling to that is uplifting and promising and filled with eternal hope. We are, after all, in Christ. So reflect on this with me. Think about the life of a person who believes that their entire existence begins at birth and then ends at physical death. Just you think about that with me for a moment as a believer, knowing what you know about eternal life. Think about a person who just thinks about their life as bookended by birth and physical death. And that's, you know, the end of it. As a believer, that thought makes me anxious because it makes me think of how little time we really do have here on earth. And if you've paid attention, um, 
just about every old person I've run into, they all say the same thing. They say, life is short. Here I am at the end of my physical life, and I've concluded that life is short. It must be awful. With that as the conclusion at the end of the average person's life, it must be awful to say, well, that's it. Life is short, and not only that, that's the whole of it. That's as good as it gets. That's awful. We, though, have a blessing or the blessing of hope of things to come. And the things to come are infinitely more wonderful than anything we'll ever experience here on earth. Go to John 14, verse 1. John 14, verse 1. We have context. We have perspective. We have purpose. In the grand scheme of things, this life is just a pilgrimage, right? To borrow from John Bunyan, it's just a pilgrimage. It's just something we go through. There's a lot of suffering in it, even. The best is yet to come. John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? How wonderful is that? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That's a reference to the rapture. That where I am, you may be also. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. Think about that. I want, I want to be with him. I want to spend eternity with the one who chose to save me when I was a complete wretch. I want to be with that guy. I want to be with that one. I can't imagine not knowing that and having to live this life not knowing that. Thinking this is as good as it gets. That's a terrible, awful cursed life. And Jesus said in verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. Up here on the board, as a friendly reminder, I know many of you know this, but not all. We are Christ's bride. He's our husband. Christ has gone to prepare a home for his bride. We just read that in John 14, 1-4. That's the church. We believers at this point in time. Those who were saved prior to the church age, not everyone is a member of his bride. The church didn't come until he left even. He came and left. So what about all the saints before Jesus' ministry on earth? What about those folks? Well, those who were saved prior to the church age will be there to celebrate our marriage in heaven, which is beautiful. Revelation 19, 6-9. Go there. Revelation 19, 6-9. What a wonderful reality to look forward to. Revelation 16, oh, excuse me, 19, 6. Am I saying this backwards? Yeah, sorry about that. 
19.6. A little bit of dyslexia first thing in the morning. Hmm. Revelation 19.6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. That's you and I. We get to look forward to this marriage, this supper, and those that preceded us in the church are going to be there to rejoice with us in this moment, in the future, after all this is said and done. So this all happens after the rapture of the church that we noted in John 14.3. Look at verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited, those are the non-church-age believers, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Again, we have a lot to look forward to up here on the board. For starters, we are Christ's bride. Christ has gone to prepare a home for his bride, the church, we believers, those who were saved prior to the church age, will be there to celebrate our marriage in heaven. That's what we just read in Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Back to our previous point of consideration. What must it be like to believe that this is as good as it gets here on earth? You know, the 70 or 80 years or so that we live. What is that like to think, this is as good as it gets. I'm born, I die, I better, I better stuff as much possible enjoyment or whatever you want to call it into those 70 or 80 years, and then that's it. Compare that to what we just noted in Holy Scripture. Compare that context, that perspective, to what we just noted in Holy Scripture. The differences are infinite in scope. Infinite. It's not even close. One person's scurrying around to try to, you know, live life to the fullest before they croak. Um, the other is, as Peter wrote, enjoying a living hope of things to come. My great joy, your great joy, I hope at this point, at this juncture of your life, by now for most of you, it has nothing to do with what even exists here on earth. It has everything to do with what we know is to come. Jesus Christ said himself, you know, you've got to pick up your cross. I picked up mine, and for a joy set before me, I endured it. Yeah, that's what life is to a believer. We're going to be persecuted. We submit to that reality. We say, we're going to suffer. Jesus Christ suffered. He said, if 
I suffered, you're going to suffer. The world doesn't even, the world does not just like you, it hates you because you represent me. You will suffer. And so we have to get that in our heads very quickly, which re requires some undoing because we're trained at a very early age to get what's ours, to make the most of this world, to be self-made men and women, and to be stuff as much as we can into that thing called life. But with the proper perspective, we're relieved from that. We're delivered from that. And we say, no, the reality is we're, we're supposed to suffer here on Earth in this little sliver. It's, I mean, if you, look at it in, if you look at 70 years relative to eternity, it, it, if you're a mathematician type, it literally goes to infinite zero. It like, just disappears. It goes Because the timeline's infinite. 70 years just basically goes to less than a blip. And we look at it that way and we say, this is my life. It's a blip. I've been given eternal life. I've been given a living hope. Go to 1 Peter 1, 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. That's the perspective difference. And that's why you see so many people in this world, unbelievers, scurrying around like little rats or little rabbits chasing carrots. And it breaks my heart. I'm not bitter towards them. Sometimes they aggravate me. Sometimes they aggravate you, I'm sure. Right? I was on my motorcycle yesterday, and uh, <sighs> everybody's in a hurry. Some, some guy, who, I don't know, he's probably looked like he was 60 years old. He's got his wife in the car. He's not even paying attention. He almost, like, drove into me. Coming through a stop sign, I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Why are you in such a hurry? You could see him do that thing, you know, that thing, like, stop signs are roll signs. Do you know what I'm getting at? He just did one of these. He, he kind of slowed down where he probably should have stopped, but he did that roll through, and you could tell he's in a hurry. He's doing one of these numbers. And I'm on my bike going, what are you doing? No eye contact. He's just doing this thing, and it looked like him and his wife were in a rush to go out to dinner or something. So I have to come to almost a full stop on the side. And, you know, I'm like, what are you hurrying about for? What's the big rush? You're gonna, you, oh, oh, I forgot. You only live 70 years, and you've got to stuff everything possible into that 70 years. And that precipitates down into every moment in time you're rushing around to try to stuff your stupid calendar. Don't worry about the, the ordained pastor on a motorcycle that you almost drove into a tree, you jackass. Don't worry about that guy. You worry about your disgusting, selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed little life. But that's the world. That's the, it makes me sad. Does it aggravate me? As you could just see. Listen, when you're on a motorcycle, you know. Does it aggravate me? Yeah, it does aggravate me. But it breaks my heart. Afterwards, I'm like driving down the road, and I see in my rearview mirror, and I'm like, sad. What is that, what's that important, my friend, that you can put other people's lives in jeopardy? Honestly, 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Oh, thank God. Thank God we have relief. 
from that bondage of thinking this is as good as it gets. Thank God. And maybe just maybe we can slow down. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, 1 Peter 1.6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation, the deliverance in time even. Do you understand? The salvation of your souls, but that also includes the deliverance. Your deliverance in time even. When you have that temptation to... Forget that life is short and this is just a blip. That you've been given eternal life. When you remember that, it just all goes poof, right? Whatever that thing is you were rushing for, it doesn't matter anymore. It just goes to poof. It's like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? For we believers, life on earth, though filled with certain blessings pales in comparison to life after this one. Up here on the board, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all, or we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if this is as good as it gets, ah, it's pitiful. 1 Timothy 4.10 For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. That's the kind of hope that the Spirit's inserting into our souls. And how's that for perspective? Now, Here's the point the Spirit made, uh, I think it was last Sunday, that really puts a line in the sand. And it brings back into focus the idea of having purpose in life up here on the board. Now, make the connections. If you're not with God, you're against Him. Matthew 12.30, Mark 9.40. There is no neutrality. I think for some people that's shocking to hear. But when you understand what the Bible has to say about the subject of salvation even, you realize that it's not a gray thing. There's not a kind of sort of salvation. There's not a religious, I'm almost good enough salvation. And if I do a rush job at the end of my life, then I'll make it through the pearly gates. 
That is garbage. Get rid of it. If that still exists in your soul, dump it off at the nearest corner. That is not how salvation works. If you're not with God, you're against Him. There is no neutrality. If you're against Him, your life is vapid, your purpose is fleeting, and your faith and hope is in vain. Just like Solomon said, all is vanity, Ecclesiastes 1, 2. Here's what Jesus had to say. Go to Matthew 12, verse 30. Matthew 12, verse 30. These are not my words, and I'm not making some false conclusion in any way, shape, or form on this topic. I want everybody in here to know, believer or unbeliever, to know this very truth. Matthew 12, 30. At least... At least there's enough integrity coming from this pulpit to draw that line in the sand for you. Right? To let the Word of God cut to the bone and marrow of the situation. Matthew 12, 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Um, do you see any gray area? That's because it doesn't exist. Matthew 12, 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. To paraphrase that, whoever's not here, think of it in physicality almost, you know. Whoever's not here with Jesus must be over there. That's it. If you're not here with me, then Jesus said, then you're over there. There's no wishy-washy middle ground. There's no neutral spot in the middle where you're a swell guy or a swell gal. And, you know, when, it, when you die, God's going to scratch his head and go, wow, you, all right, you were good enough. It doesn't work like that. It does not work like that. Jesus said, you're with me here or you're over there. And that's it. That's one side of the coin. Here's the other side for the sake of fullness. Go to Mark 9.40. Mark 9, verse 40. So if you're not over here with me, then you're over there. That's what we just read. Mark 9.40. What does that say? Very simply. For the one who is not against us is for us. That's the other side of the coin. In other words, whoever's not over there must be here with us. So he said, if you're not here, you're over there. And if you're not over there, then you're over here. Do you understand? Same statement, basically. Just rounding the thing out. That's all. No neutrality, though. If you're over there, you can't be here. You must be here. Oh, excuse me. If you're over there, you, you know what I'm saying, right? It's tougher than you think. If you're here, you must. If you're not here with me, you must be over there. If you're over here, you must not be over there. I think I still screwed that up. You know what I'm saying. Point of the board. If you're not with God, you're against him. There's no neutrality. If you're, not against, if you're against him, your life is vapid. This is the point of this, by the way. Your life is vapid, your purpose is fleeting, and your faith and hope is in vain. All is vanity. Our opening passage was 
from the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon describes the context of his own life um, in great detail and how all of his human experiments just failed. He said, yep, I did that. Money, yep. Sex, yep. Prestige, yep. This, yep. Working hard, yep. Uh, I've tried everything. Reading a lot of books, did that too. None of it worked. None of it worked. None of it paid off. All the experiments failed. And I think it's funny. Be, well, I'll leave that for another day. If we think about our own lives, we quickly realize that they, too, are filled with our own experiments that are done in human effort. Solomon's not the only one. Come on. Some of you experimented this morning. Some of you experimented this morning. Some of you experimented last night. I don't know. The good news is that God knew about you long before you did. And just knowing that helps give our lives context. We might even say that our life's context extends beyond our own lifetimes. That's like a brain cramper, right? In other words, your life had context before you were even born. From God's perspective, Matter of fact, if you want to know the truth about theology proper, he elected you before you were even born. He chose you before you were even born. Hmm. He knew us before we were even born and that we've been destined all along. If you're a believer, we've been destined all along to spend eternity in his presence. We ought to find comfort in knowing this simple truth. Go to Psalm 139, verse 13. Psalm 139, verse 13. That's how intimate he is with us as well, which again gives us context. And when we have context, we have purpose. Psalm 139, verse 13. I'm going to read this quickly because we read this on Thursday. Psalm 139, 13. For you formed my, inner, my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them. This is before I was born. Before you were born. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. You know, those 70 or 80 years, right? He already knows. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. So this broadens our perspective a little. Up here on the board, we looked at this on Thursday as well. The sum of God's thoughts. This is godly wisdom. Just to read what we read. 
knowing that he knew about us before we were even born. That might be a revelation for some people. Especially if you think that birth and physical death are the bookends of life itself. This is godly wisdom. The more knowledge we have, the larger the sum. We gain knowledge by studying the Word of God. What we're doing right now, this is how it happens. The contrary, this, the, the flip side is the speculation is tantamount to invention, which is evil. So we got in this whole idea of, well, what do you do in the absence of this wisdom? Well, what man is really good at in the first place? They invent. They invent. They say, I don't know anything about God, so I'm going to invent what I think I know about God. I imagine God is this way. I imagine Jesus Christ is this long-haired, blonde guy with blue eyes. So I'm going to imagine him that way. And he's all ripped up and jacked up, and he hangs up on a cross. And I put that up, in the, and, I, and I worship this image of someone that, did, that never even existed. Because that's how I imagine him to be. That's, that's, that's how I want him to be. So I'm just going to speculate in the absence of actually reading the Word of God, of actually understanding what the eternal truth of him is. Remember, he's the Alpha and the Omega. There's been a lot of speculation about him since the beginning of mankind. But he predated even Adam and Eve, so he's been who he is all along. We're just the fools that try to invent and speculate and all that good stuff. Concentrate up here on the board. The caution. The most dangerous thing you can do when you sit down to ponder the purpose of your life is to do so in the absence of godly wisdom. Because you speculate. And Isaiah 55, 8, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Sounds like a dangerous proposition to speculate about the things of God. Go to Proverbs 4, 7. An old friend of ours. Proverbs 4, verse 7. Again, this is wisdom on wisdom. This is us getting wisdom about wisdom, about the value of wisdom. Proverbs 14, 7. Old friend, we've seen this a bazillion times this last year alone. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get it. Get wisdom. You want it. That's the beginning of wisdom, to get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Insight into what? That you have purpose in life, I guess? in the context of this message, that you have purpose? Up here on the board, to our previous point, the sum of God's thoughts, this is godly wisdom. The more knowledge we have, the larger the sum. We gain knowledge by studying the word of God. Speculation is tantamount to invention, which is evil. Here's the conclusion from our studies thus far, up here on the board. On context and purpose, godly wisdom gives your life context when you discover this context for yourself, you realize that God has a purpose for you. You have a joy set before you, regardless of circumstances, which in of itself is a tremendous blessing. Just knowing you have a purpose that's beyond that 70 or 80 years or
beyond stuffing that 70 or 80 years full with as much stuff and activities and distractions and, you know, whatever as you can, instead of that being your objective in life, you're released from it. You realize you have a much greater purpose. You've been given the gift of gifts, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to spread that gospel, spread the good news. Having wisdom means having purpose. They are essentially the same thing for we believers. So just reflect on that for a moment. Step back and consider your motivation when you read your Bible. Step back and consider your motivation when you read your Bible. Of course, it's to know the mind of Christ, to know Christ, in other words. But isn't it also to continue to understand your purpose in life? I mean, don't you open up your book and go, I wonder what he's going to reveal to me, right? And you kind of get giddy, and you're like, oh, this is going to be good, right? Some of you are like, ah, it's probably not going to be good today. <laughs> he's probably going to tell me I've been, you know, whatever. But, you know, you open up your body and you're like, ah, oh, this is going to be great because he's going to tell me something about myself. He's going to reveal to me something about me that I can confess to him as being true about me. So, I mean, don't we also read our Bibles for that purpose, to figure out and to understand our purpose in life? I think so. You read your Bible because it fills you, hence the analogy to food. Go to John 6.32. John 6.32. The Word of God fills you, right? And Jesus Christ said, the one who comes to me will never thirst and will never hunger. He's always there to satisfy our hunger pangs and our thirsts. And he fills us up. John 6.32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. John 6.33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The Word of God fills us up. You read your Bible because you get filled up. That's the food, the bread analogy. We're filled up. With what? With knowledge, with wisdom, even about ourselves. Context, purpose. When you read your Bible, God points things out to you. And when he does that, you're able to relate to things that you read about in your own life. And we call that application. We take the things that we see in the Bible and we apply them to our own lives. And we, say, and we have like aha moments, right? You know, when you read and you're like, oh, that's like me. And you're like, aha, that's what's been going on. It's just like me. 
That's why we read it up here in the board. The New Living Translation, 1 Corinthians 9, 26, reads, So I run with purpose in every step. I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. You see the word purpose there? That was wisdom given to Paul by Christ himself. And it gave Paul purpose. I'll give you the amplified version. Same verse, just for clarity's sake, just for amplification. Therefore, I do not run without a definite goal. I do not flail around like one beating the air, just shadow boxing. The Bible is teaching us how to live a life filled with purpose. For example, just think about our primary course of study as of late. Go back to Proverbs 17, verse 1. Proverbs 17, verse 1. So much going on there. <clears throat> Proverbs 17, verse 1. <clears throat> We've done a lot, I mean, this is part six, right? So we've done a lot of work so far on just the first three verses. Proverbs 17, 1, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts, or tests hearts. Up here on the board, that final mention of the crucible up here on the board, we've learned this, that faith must be tested for it to be consummated. Otherwise, you don't know to what degree that faith is pure. It must be tested. The fire turned up on it. And the result of that is always that there's some slag on the top. We realize, oh, my faith really is impure. Not in every way, but in maybe many ways, maybe in some ways. Something always comes to the top. And he says, good. Do you confess it? I do. I see it, Lord. Okay, we can scrape that off. Take that right off. And your faith is purified. So the next time he turns up the heat, maybe less comes to the top. And maybe eventually in one area of your life, your faith is so pure, and it can happen, that he turns up the heat and you're like, hmm. And he's like, do you realize you're bringing glory to me right now? I'm letting some pretty dastardly people attack you right now. I'm letting some pretty harmful things that would have destroyed you 10 years ago come full on into your life. And you're going, do you realize how much glory you're bringing me? That's why I left you here. That's why I left you here. Now I'm really going to send you out with the gospel. Think about that this weekend. 
how important it is that we allow this thing to happen in us because we often go out as Christians and tell the world, we wear our t-shirts, right? The John 3.16 t-shirts. We tell the world that we're Christians and then the world says, oh, are you? And the kingdom of darkness goes, oh, are you now? Let me turn up the heat a little bit. And you're the worst one in the whole bunch. And they go, this is what a Christian is? This is what, this is what Jesus produces in a person? This is the example? I don't want to be any part of that thing. Don't get away from me with the so-called good news. It sounds like bad news to me. If you're the end product, it doesn't sound like good news to me at all. Do you understand the value then of, of humbly going through these exercises at the hand of God? so that your faith can be purified, so that it can stand up under load, so that the, the rest of the world can't look upon you and, sh- and shame you? Some of you are like, oh man, you mean, yes, you call yourself a Christian. The first six letters, did I do that right? Are Christ. You call yourself a Christian, and then you go out there and do that. And the rest of the world goes, and God's like, right? <laughs> he doesn't do that, but you know what I'm saying, right? He's like, oh, oh. That's the value of having your faith purified. Because when it stands up under full load, it brings glory to God. That's where humility comes in. You have to go into that crucible with humility. Humility so that your faith can be consummated. You have to willingly go into the crucible, accepting the fact, the way Jesus said, you will be persecuted. So stop running away from those tests. Stop running away. Geography's not going to do it. Another relationship certainly is not going to do it. more cars is not going to do it. A bigger job, a better job is not going to do it. A new this, a new that, and a shiny new object. Hitting the bottle is not going to do it. Hitting the, the pipe is not going to do it. You know, none of that stuff, all those little techniques that you use, it doesn't work. Stop running away. Go into the crucible headlong. Oh, this is going to hurt, isn't it? Yep. It's like you ever, you ever jump in the ocean when it's really cold and you're like, oh, right? You know what I mean? It's that thing. It's like, oh, it's going to hurt. Oh! You go in. This is what the Spirit just spent the first part of a message this morning delving into. The Bible teaches us that our lives have purpose. But in order for us to realize the fullness of that statement, we must have our faith tested. That's the point. Stated more practically... For us to have faith in our purpose, for us to have faith in our purpose, well, that faith must be tested, lest we realize the vector we've placed ourselves on isn't facing what I like to call true north. We have faith in something, but we might be going in the wrong direction. You understand? We maybe have a little bit too much faith. We have a little too much faith in ourselves. Let's put it that way, right? We say, I don't need to read the Bible. 
I'm just going to speculate. I'm going to invent. I don't need to read the Bible. I'm going to set my own course, right? You know, like that poem, oh, captain, my captain type thing, right? I am the, I am the captain of my own destiny. You're a jackass. And you're talking to a guy who literally lived by that. And you know what? I dominated for a while. Oh, yeah, Ed. Oh, aren't you just so special? No, I was a jackass, too. Why is Tammy going? I don't know. I see her out of the corner of my eyes. Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's true. Mm -hmm. I lived through it. <laughs> Big deal. What? You're able to dominate a bunch of other fools? <laughs> What's that make you? What, a moron? King of the fools? Ay, ay, ay. The things we do. The point is, though, you might be on the wrong vector. You might have placed yourself on the wrong vector. That's the point. While it's great to believe you have purpose, your faith and trust in that purpose must be appropriately placed. It's got to be appropriately placed. So think about this. Think back to a time where you thought you had true faith in something that you also thought was truly biblical. You said, yep, that's my doctrine. That's what I believe. I believe this thing to be true. Think about that, right? And you know where I'm going with this. Only to find out after reading your Bible in humility, God said, hey, wake up. Stop taking other people's advice, other people's so-called doctrines as your own. Stop living on someone else's beliefs or someone else's convictions. Stop doing that because they could be wrong. Be a Berean, right? Go study it out for yourself. You found out after reading your Bible in humility that what you thought was true actually wasn't. Ever happened to you? Oh, Scott, you're literally Scott? Anybody else? Second chance? Anybody ever happened to you? Oh, my, you guys are arrogant. I know for a fact everybody in here that's been listening to me. You guys are all, I'm writing everybody an email. I'm like, that, it was disgusting. You had your opportunity twice and you just sat there. Not me. Mm -mm. I've known everything since I came out of the womb. I've never been duped. Oh, my word. Anyways, since I'm dealing with two people that are actually humble, uh, I'll share one of mine, since apparently I'm one of three in here that this has actually happened to. So just bear with me. Will you just humor me for a little bit? <clears throat> in my own folly, oh, perfect ones. I thought for a long time that a person could be saved and exhibit no changes whatsoever in their lives. I thought that for a very long time. In other words, a person could be saved and bear no fruit. No consistent fruit. Let me put it that way. No habitual fruit. Once in a while they may look the part, but, you know, everybody does on Christmas and Easter, right? You know what I'm getting at. I thought for a long time a person could be saved, changed. and never bear any fruit. And I was willing to accept that proclamation from others even as truth. 
after studying my Bible in humility, I realized that a person who doesn't bear any good fruit towards Jesus Christ can't possibly be saved. Can't possibly be saved. The demons do not like this. They just crashed. My, my presentation just crashed. Can you believe that? Every time I teach something like this, this is complete distraction. Okay, now I'm back. No, I'm not. What are you guys doing? Now I'm back. We good? Hey, thanks, man. Listen, do you, do you not understand what just happened? Just put this into perspective. What just happened? Look at this. thing's freaking me out. Stop. What just happened? Why? Now I'm getting mad, right? Why? Because the damn demons are in here screwing around with DJ and Michael and my computer, right? This is ridiculous. Why? What do you think I just said? You think that's, that's one of the biggest lies in all of Christianity, that you can be saved and have no fruit whatsoever. It's a damned lie. A damn lie. And I believed it, and I know all of you who didn't raise your hand, you dogs, believed it too. It's a damn lie from the pit of hell. There is no such thing. You are changed. You can't possibly be saved and bear zero fruit. And I will use the word persistently and consistently. When I was humble reading my Bible, it taught me that a saved person is a changed person. To say anything less is an insult to the holy God of the universe. It's an insult. Oh, of course, it's very accommodating because I can, tell my, I can lie to my children. You're good. Remember when you said that when you were a little taught? Remember when you said that little prayer? Remember when, this, remember when you said, oh, I believe in Jesus? You're good. I can lie to my kids about it, even though I look at them and go, what the hell? They're living like hell. They don't give a crap about Jesus Christ. All they care about is themselves. How do I know? All I have to do is look at their fruit. They do nothing for Jesus. They don't care about Jesus at all. They only care about themselves. They will mention Jesus for as long as it shuts their actually saved parents up for a little bit. But that's as good as it gets. That is not salvation. That's a lie that I had to live through. And then in humility realized, oh my word, that's an insult to my Lord. The Bible taught me that a saved person is a changed person. And a changed person has a very real affection for Jesus Christ. And it's eternal. It's not fleeting. Fleeting is for the apostates. The ones who, you know, taste it, go, that's really yummy, and then go back to their lives. Read the parable of the soils. They get choked out, right? Money, prestige, whatever chokes them out. They get choked out. And the proof is in the pudding. They don't last. Why? They never really had saving faith. 
changed person has a very real affection for Jesus Christ, and not just as someone who's willing to give them a free ride to heaven. Who doesn't like that guy, right? Who doesn't like that guy? You give me a free ticket to heaven? Ah, oh, yeah, definitely. I definitely want that, because that sounds a hell of a lot better than hell, if there is one. So I'm just going to wage my, you know, I'm going to wage my bets. I'm going to hedge my bets, right? I'm going to go to church every so often. And I'm going to hedge my bets and say, all right, this is a good play, you know. I'm going to play this like I play the stock market, so it looks like a good investment, right? You're either with me or against me. With me means you're changed. That little middle ground I just described, hedging bets and stuff like that, that's in this bucket. And there is no tweener. There's nothing. You're with them or you're against them. That is it. And I was fooled about that for a very long time. I thought you could be kind of in the middle a little bit. You know, saved but, you know, carnal, as I used to like to say. Go to Matthew 7.13. Here's, here's one of the key passages that convicted me of my error. I flung my computer around. I don't even know what time it is anymore. You guys do that. I'm going to see if I can recover over here. Oh, did you guys already shut it off? Oh, you did? You said to heck with the... No, you said to heck with the slides? No, mine doesn't. It's not showing anything. It's not sure. Let me try one last time. Matthew 7, 13. I just want to share with you one of the uh, passages that, yeah, it's toast, that convicted me. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Enter by the narrow gate. Does anybody have any questions about what narrow means or wide? Wide would be, listen, ready? Narrow is what I described or what Jesus described. You're with me or you're against me. You're with me, narrow. Everybody else, wide. The gate that leads to life, narrow. Everybody else, wide. What modern Christianity says is, no, 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 the gate is wide to include these, what, people that proclaim to be saved, these, these uh, betters, these players, these phonies, these, yeah, that this is the truth. No, we're reading Jesus' words here. Right? Enter the narrow gate. For the way the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. The way is hard that leads to life. Hmm. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You know, here's, here's a perfect example that you will see. Turn on your television sometime, typically on a Sunday, I don't know. You know what a ravenous wolf looks like? 
If I tell you, I'm going to pretend for a moment, if I tell you that the way is wide that leads to uh, life, will you send me money? Will you buy more of my books? Will you? If I lie to your face and tell you, oh, you're good, go ahead and play those little games. You're good. Will you, will you give me more money? That's a wolf. That's a wolf. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly uh, ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. Did I say that? No. If you are saved, you will bear good fruit. Done. Over. Conversation's done. There's no such thing as being a good tree and bearing no good fruit. Otherwise, Jesus Christ is a flippant liar. Are you going to go on a limb and say he's a liar? I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to hang my hat on every word he says, every syllable. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. You're born diseased. You're born depraved. You're born lost. A healthy tree cannot bad, bear bad fruit, and we're talking about consistency and persistency. Doesn't mean you can't sin, because we all do. But a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Did I not just describe something very similar to purified faith? Yep. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I want to look at one more passage, if you'll bear with me, um, that convicted me that a person who doesn't consistently bear good fruit towards Jesus Christ can't possibly be saved. Go quickly, Luke 13, 22. Luke 13, 22. How are we doing? We're doing all right on time. You guys, I don't see a whole lot of coffee, so you guys are probably doing pretty good. Luke 13, 22. <clears throat> Again, I'm just in the midst of sharing something with you. Okay? Luke 13, 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. 
And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Luke 13, 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. I had a slide up here for the Greek word agonizomai, where we get the English word agonize, right? For strive. That's what the Greek word is for this word strive in Luke here, this passage. Strive, agonize, to struggle. This is what it means, to struggle, literally, to compete for a prize, figuratively, to contend with an adversary. Or genitive case, to endeavor to accomplish something. Fight, labor fervently, strive. Who's this awful struggle with? You know, there's this, who, who we contend, who's the adversary? It's our enemies. It's the flesh, the kingdom of darkness, and Satan himself. That's who we strive against. I'll say this again, and it's a definite part of the wisdom the Bible has imparted to my soul. You ready? And I think I'll end with this. We'll, we'll finish the, uh, yeah, we'll finish the passage, but I think this is the last principle. I'll say this again. Ah, I don't even have the slide. It'll be here next time, hopefully. But listen, this was supposed to be a, 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 the slide. Grace is free, not easy. Grace is free, not easy. Let me explain. Grace is constrained by God's integrity towards those he chooses to give it to. Who does he give grace to? James 4, 6, the humble. The humble. Who will take whatever he gives them and be grateful for it. Grace is constrained. In, in other words, if you tell me this is the narrow way that leads to life, I humbly submit to it. I'll take your word on it. Grace is constrained by God's integrity towards those he chooses to give it to. Now, from the flesh's perspective, grace is difficult. Grace is difficult because it requires humility to receive it. The flesh would prefer to redefine grace as something that accommodates its unholy desires. For example, live for self and obtain a free ticket to heaven. Now that's grace. Someone's teaching that right now. And they've got 40,000 people listening to them. Look around. You teach the truth? I guess the, the wait a minute, the gate really is narrow? Few find it? Beware of the false prophets. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. I'll lie to you and tell you the gate is this wide. And you're going to give me all your money. And you're going to come in droves. Because what I'm teaching you isn't offensive to your flesh. Your flesh is like, 
I can live with that. Matter of fact, when I show up in front of 40,000 other morons with my I Love Jesus shirt on, we all like look at each other like, right on, brother. Right on, sister. Let's go sing some rock music for half an hour. Woo, let's get all emotional. Woo. What's that? That's accommodating the flesh. That's telling the flesh what they want. To, as a matter of fact, it's even making it uh, attractive to the flesh. You mean I can, I can play religious? Go ahead, feel free to bring in the Pharisees, by the way, who got a lot of um, reputation because they were religious. You mean I can play religious? And the people around me like, are like, dude, you're one of us. Yeah. This is all you. Amen, brother. Preach it, brother. Go up there and testify, brother. Go do that thing. Grace is free. It does not mean it's easy. There's another lie from the pit of hell. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that grace is easy. Nowhere. Do we, what do we just read? Well, you would see it in the original Greek, so you would be convinced. Agonize. Look at verse 30, 24, right? Agonize to enter through the narrow door. Fight with your adversaries to enter through the narrow door. The first one you have to deal with is that stinking flesh of yours. Jonah says, I, no, I'm not submitting to Jesus Christ. Uh-uh. I'm keeping my life for myself. I'm going to play the middle ground. I'll give a little bit to Jesus when it's church time and the rest of the time is mine. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you straight to your face. If that's how you think, you are not saved. You have never been saved. I will tell that to your face based on Holy Scripture. A saved person doesn't play that game. Doesn't even want to. Why? Because their heart has been changed. They don't want to play that game anymore. That's the whole point of salvation. That's the whole point. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. I think I'm going to leave you with that. Just remember this, please. Five words with a comma. If you, hey, listen, if you text like most kids do nowadays, there's not capitals or commas. It's just five words. This is a... Nobody? Nobody has... Grace is free, not easy. In my world, grace is free, comma, not easy. However you like to think about it. Grace is free, not easy. I need you to think about that. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. If you understand it, everything we talked about this morning about life has context and purpose. If you don't understand this, you miss it. You miss the other stuff. You miss the other stuff. Why do you think I'm laboring up here? Tell me the truth. Is what you got this morning a grace gift to your soul? Okay. Does it look like I'm laboring? Yeah. You know why? 
Because it's not easy. And we, we laughed about it, but honestly, three people raised a hand during that thing. I'm not convicting you, but you know what I'm saying, right? Three people, what was the problem? I'm embarrassed. You know what that was? Your flesh. I'm embarrassed to admit it. That was your flesh. Welcome to the struggle. Welcome to the agony. Welcome to the striving. Welcome to all that. You lived it, right? Publicly. Grace is free. Not easy. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dearly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege to learn the truth from your word, to be set free by it, Father. We just ask for blessings as we take everything we've learned here this morning back to the privacy of our own souls, Father. We are so grateful for your patience as we do this thing, your mercy, your love. We pray that you reveal the deepest things to us so that we're set free, Father. We ask all this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.